Welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast, a program highlighting key voices in the intersection of media, politics, and public policy. On this episode, we look back to last year's protests in Ferguson, Missouri, and the role of the media in covering the events. Social and the internet allows people to tell their own stories in a way that we couldn't previously. That's Wesley Lowry, a reporter at the Washington Post, who spent several months in Ferguson covering the protests that began after the fatal shooting of Michael Brown by a police officer in August 2014. Wesley spoke at the Shorenstein Center in February 2015 about his experiences in Ferguson and shared his thoughts on the importance of first-person testimony when reporting on social unrest. In this podcast, we hear some of the highlights of his talk, including how he used social media to broaden his coverage from Ferguson and the possible long-term legacy of protests. We'll start by hearing a brief comment from Michelle Norris, a special correspondent at NPR, who spent the spring 2015 semester here as a Joan Shorenstein Fellow. During an event in April 2015, she spoke about how mobile technology and social media are helping to bring attention to stories that might otherwise have been overlooked by mainstream media. I, I don't know that it's a sudden realization. I think we have a new lens through which to view it. Um, the things that we're seeing are not new. The, the, the difference is that we're seeing them. Um, when you see the grainy videos of uh, Walter Scott or Eric Garner losing his life on camera or now the young man that was arrested in Baltimore mm. you know being dragged to a police car we see all of that um, if you look at the police statistics it indicates that this has been happening for some time but we didn't have this sort of first-person grainy video to document that what we're seeing is, is not new um, we're just seeing it more more clearly Wesley Lowry of the Washington Post reported from Ferguson from August through December of 2014. A key feature of his reporting was extensive use of social media and first-person testimony. He explained how he wanted to avoid the typical approach taken by national media when reporting on places outside of their usual focus. It's very easy, especially once you're at a national outlet. You drop in these places and you think you can just write this definitive account of Ferguson, Missouri. You know, let, let, me, let me paint you this picture from the sleepy suburb of, of St. Louis, and, and we fall into that. You know, I was, I was joking earlier, you know, you, we, we've all read that New York Times piece, the swooping piece about this place that this reporter's never been before until yesterday. But I decided I wanted to cover it more like a metro reporter covering a city that I lived in, um, that I wanted to have as many conversations with as many people as possible to de- develop as deep and has nuanced of understanding of this place, to write as often as possible, to not just drop in and then write one piece at the end of the week, but I'm gonna write two things a day, every day I'm here. And at the end of that, maybe I might actually have something to say in some swooping way. Maybe I'll actually understand this place. Um, and the other thing, I tried to partner that, because that was how I took my writing, my newspaper work, my articles, but I also said, I want to show people this place, because I'd never been here. I'd never been to this place. I don't understand what this place looks, what it looked like. I didn't understand the spatial context. And so I tried to use social media as robustly as possible, not necessarily to talk, not even to broadcast, not to be giving commentary, which I did do some, I did some analysis, but more so to show people things. So a lot of pictures, a lot of short video, a lot of, it's how can I take you, if you're sitting in your office in D.C. or in New York or in Kansas or in California or in Wyoming, and you want to know what this place is that's on the news. And the cable is only going to show you that same five-second loop of the same burning building for days. I'm going to show you the same building over and over and over again. You know exactly what the, the burning gas station looks like because we've all seen it for hours of loop. 
But what does the block next door to that look like? What does the home look like? What does the protest look like before it gets violent and it's just a bunch of kids? Lowry discussed how talking to as many people as possible revealed the many different reasons that Ferguson residents had for protesting. But it was very apparent very early, every person I talked to had, a, had some very specific story, a specific anecdote, and a specific distrust for the law enforcement there. Uh, there was a very specific illegitimacy of the government as is in this place. And, and that, in some ways, I think is the most important thing to understand about Ferguson, Missouri. And so as I learned more about St. Louis, I learned more about Missouri, I, I realized that so much of this, so much of this distrust, again, was not about this shooting. It was about... It was about the, the guy who'd gotten pulled over the week before and felt like he was, he was manhandled a little bit, who I met that first night while we were getting tear gassed. It was about, there's now, now a, a guy, I joke with him all the time, he, he became one of the kind of faces of Ferguson, the iconic picture of the guy holding the bag of chips and like America um, shirt and he's throwing the tear gas canister back at the police. So I interviewed that guy that first night when we first got tear gassed. He was just like some kid standing across the street from me. And so we talked and he tells me, he goes, you know, listen, when all this is over, when this all stops and you got media all goes away, we're still going to be stuck here in this place. This, this is still going to be our environment. It's still where we live. And the reason we're so upset is because we want to fix the, fix the things about where we live. Lowry explained how social media is changing the relationship between news organizations and their audiences. One of the lessons of Ferguson is, is it's a lesson that if you don't tackle those stories this way, you're going to, be, you're going to lose your relevance and you're going to lose uh, that level of being essential. Um, in the past, people weren't empowered to tell their own stories. Someone, in Ferguson, a, a kid growing up in Ferguson, Missouri, a 17-year-old, 18-year-old, 20-year-old, 32-year-old mother of four in Ferguson, Missouri, Missouri never could have told her own story. The best chance for her story to be told is if the New York Times shows up and writes some big swooping thing that might get, might get half of it wrong or might overstate some things, but that's the best shot she had because you're in an all-black suburb near St. Louis, the local paper's not really covering you, not covering the nuances of your life. But what we saw in Ferguson was that just as much as people like me could tell, were telling the story, you had access to primary sources, to primary documents, to real people who really live there telling their own stories. I'll never forget the, the guy who watched the shooting happen from his apartment and live tweeted it. And he was basically like, fuck, the cops just killed someone outside of my apartment. And that, those tweets were completely, they all got retweeted thousands of times that were compelling. And this was his, this guy communicating his own experience, this, this thing that happened to him in a way that I could never do that. I could show up and interview him and write a story about what he saw, but social and the internet allows people to tell their own stories in a way that we couldn't previously. And what that means is that if, if the people of Ferguson don't like your coverage, if they don't think it's fair, if they don't think it's nuanced, if they don't think it's real, if they don't think you really understand them, they're not going to click on it, and they're not going to propagate it. They're not going to share it, because they don't have to anymore. And in, what we've seen very often is, both myself and colleagues of mine and colleagues for other papers and other outlets, we've seen people in Ferguson and protest leaders and young activists take to task media organizations over specific lines of specific stories. And, and I think that that's so different than what it was before. You know, we used to exist in this ivory tower of news where we would write an article. We'd show up at an event and we would decide if it was worth covering. Is this newsworthy? Is it not? It would be a speech or it would be a talk. It would be a protest. And we'd show up and then we'd, and then the people who were there, who participated in, who was a, it was affecting, they would have to wait until the six o'clock news to see if we decided that it was newsworthy enough. Or they'd have to wait till the, the paper the next morning to decide if we, see if we decided if it was newsworthy enough. 
Now in real time, people can influence what we cover and how we cover it. If every news or, if every news organization but one is at an event, the people who are there participating in the event can shame the other news organization into showing up right now in real time. Or can say, hey, look at these pictures from this thing. Why aren't you guys here? Is this going to be on the news tonight? And it empowers people in a way that they've never, they've never been before. Um, we saw that so much in Ferguson. We saw so many stories there and the depth of stories and the nuance of stories being told that might not have been 10 years ago or 20 years ago if, if this had been something that happened 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and so what that meant was that the reporters who were able to excel, and I don't even include myself on that list, but the other reporters who were able to excel did it in part because they were able to communicate in these new platforms and communicate both with directly with sources and also to take that feedback. It was a two-way conversation versus a publishing conversation. And that really changed the tenor and the depth of a lot of our coverage. There are downsides to being on social media, as Lowry found as he was tweeting live from the scene of the protests. We now get this feedback so immediate, in real time while you're doing it. We're getting tear gassed and I have people like picking a fight about a word I used on Twitter. And I'm like, well, okay, dude, but like I got some stuff going on right now. And you're, you're watching, like you got these people sitting there in the basement watching a live stream of what's happening and you're like, yeah, people are, people are trying to stop them from looting this beauty shop. And some guy's like, no, actually, I'm watching the live stream. In reality, they are looting. You're like, dude, I'm standing outside the beauty shop. Leave me alone. Like, don't tweet at me right now. Social media can also lead to people getting inaccurate accounts of events due to the rapid spread of misinformation from dubious sources. We live in a time where, because of the internet and because of social, we are empowered to believe we know everything about everything and in reality know nothing about anything. We have so many more casual encounters with the news. You go to log into your email and you see some headlines. You see your aunt is posting about Ebola on Facebook. And so, so we all think we know something about Ebola, but don't know anything about Ebola. Like, none of us has read, some of us maybe, but like really read that deep article that tells you what you need to know. But we all have seen some Facebook posts about Ebola, so we all think we have a consciousness about what's happening with it. Despite the rise in citizen journalism, Lowry explained how the resources and experience of national news organizations can still benefit the regions they cover. In Ferguson, on the, on the good side, that was a place, and there are many places like this in the United States, that are sorely missing a heavy-hitting newspaper that asks hard questions of their elected officials. That no one, whether it be the Ferguson police, the mayor, the city council, the local representatives, have been asked hard questions about the things that pertain to this community in modern history. And that's not even a complete fault of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. It's a, it's a Midwestern newspaper that's had cutbacks, like my hometown paper, The Plain Dealer, or the Detroit Papers. But the reality is, in the heartland and outside of the media centers, you have places that really desperately need someone to come in and be like, hey, this is really messed up, the stuff you're doing. And I'm going to ask questions, I'm going to send some records requests in, and I'm going to publish some things, and then people are going to go, wait a second. And that is what, that being National media storms in, and it was like, I could tell you everything you ever want to know about Ferguson. I know everyone's salary, I know. And that stuff that empowers the people there now. They have information they might not have had otherwise. But Larry also notes that sustained negative coverage of an area can have a damaging psychological impact on its residents. The negative is that, and this is something that people are very conscious of, and again, this goes back to like the suburban political thought or political rhetoric of, you know, these are people who got out, they made it in America, they made it to the suburbs, they have good schools, and now they're watching their community, one block of their community, four buildings of their community, burning on CNN for 24 hours straight for days and days and days and days and days. And there's done something to the psyche and the, psych and the kind of where they are psychologically, this idea that this place, this place they care, they love, they grew up in, they live, where all of their real equity is, that's where they live, 
is now just this international symbol of like America's fraught grapple with race and law enforcement and legacy of slavery. That's like that is what Ferguson, Missouri is, and that does have psychological effects, and it does have a real impact on the people who live there. And I think that, and I think we have a responsibility, and this is what I think we didn't do well was to tell, to provide spatial context. Three blocks of Ferguson burnt. It's like pretty big suburb. And so it, I think that was one of the things we missed. Finally, Lowry reflected on the possible legacy of the Ferguson protests and how the events of a year ago have impacted the national conversation surrounding race in America. 30 years from now, we're not, I don't even know that we talk, Ferguson will be one of the linchpins of this thing, but I think we're looking at a whole period of time that begins in the early, in the mid-2000s, maybe with Katrina in 06, and Katrina and the election of first black president, and the Gina Six, and Trayvon Martin, and Troy Davis, and Oscar Grant, and you have this whole period of time where we have this constant, con we're locked in this constant conversation about race. And that was, like, in the 90s, Clinton was like, let's have a national dialogue on race. We've been locked in a perpetual dialogue on race since the election of President Obama, period. We have been, for better or worse. And we're now, and Ferguson in some ways is where that conversation started to turn the corner into action in, in multiple ways, in part because it literally turned the corner into we, this is the last time we're going to burn the city down. Like it actually, the anger actually literally turned into action in Ferguson, for better or worse. And what that prompted was all the elected officials in a lot of places and the society as a whole said, okay, we can no longer just talk about this thing, maybe we have to do something. A lot of people who either weren't inclined to want to have a conversation about these things or who were very skeptical of the specifics of what was going on said, oh, this, we'll get over this, the media is going to leave, it's going to be fine, it's going to go away. And I think that you know, we're still, seeing, we're still seeing demonstrations in a dozen cities to this day. Um, and so it, you can say whatever you want about the shooting itself. You can say whatever you want about the protest or about our law enforcement or, or about our world and our society. You, you can't say that this didn't make some type of difference and that it doesn't still have some staying power or momentum. You can hear the full hour-long talk with Wesley Lowry by visiting shorensteincenter.org and clicking on events. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by extrememusic.com.